Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 39 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and Bobby, I think our music is back from vacation. Oh, I missed it last week. I hadn't <laughs> noticed it had gone on vacation. <laughs> I, I had not noticed it either, which might be have something to do with the fact that I had forgotten to mix it in to the final... The, note to future selves. Um, probably not a great idea to record the podcast right up to a meeting that neither of us could be late for. Oh, that's true. We were in a bit of a hurry last time. <laughs> it just just goes to show you this this program is done by real people real, yeah. with, 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 with with no help with with no help and with a real lack of of, of production skills. We um, like to think it's part of our analog charm. <laughs> you should put this out on vinyl. It sure ain't digital. Um, <laughs> so it's let's see. It's Wednesday morning. Another another Wednesday episode. See Supra. Life is life is rough and busy. Right. October fourth, October fourth, ten fifty Central Time. So who what's knows the, what else will happen? What's today? going on, Bobby? There, there's stuff. There's stuff. We got a lot to talk about. So first and foremost, uh, congratulations to you, Steve. Your cases, your military, uh, judicial, whatever, whatever, whatever you call these. Your cases got <laughs> cert granted. Steve Vladek is going to go argue at the court. Watch out, world. I'm excited about this. This is really cool. Uh, I may or may not go and sit in the front row and, and offer, you know, whispered commentary. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. I, you know, at some point, I, at some point, this might actually mean that I will force you to actually read the briefs and take a position on whether you think we're actually right. I will. For, since you got cert granted, I will start paying attention. But, you know, just, just to quickly remind folks, I mean, the, the, the cases are basically about um, the judges on the Intermediate Appeals Court for the Guantanamo Military Commissions and whether their appointment to that court as military officers violates the Civil War era statute that requires military officers to receive special permission from Congress before they can accept a second civil office, like we argue in Article One judicial appointment. Um, we'll say more about it as we get closer. Though. All right, so let's let's come back to this in a minute. That'll be our first topic, and yeah. we'll also mention the, um, some some minor procedural developments relating to the uh, Balul. More, more SCOTUS. And, yeah, more, more SCOTUS, Balul and Nashiri cases. And then, um, so that'll be topic one. Topic two, we're going to return to our uh, third week in a row oh talking about a, a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant. Why is no one paying attention to the story? Well, you know, we've got it. We have a handful of in, intrepid uh, journalists who are, who are following it. And thanks to them, we're, we're hearing drips and drabs. Uh, Carol Rosenberg. Uh, Spencer uh, Ackerman. L- Spencer Ackerman, Lolita uh, Baldor, yep. AP. They're all following this, um, but there's an information vacuum. So, we're, but we have one gem of an information tidbit that a unnamed senior official suggested that one option on the table is to transfer this person to Iraqi custody. And it just so happens, dear listeners, that you're stuck with perhaps the two foremost experts on the U.S. law of detainee transfers. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's. I'd put you in that category. I am going to just cause havoc by trying to yeah. ask questions in this space. We're going to talk about detainee transfers and the Munaf decision from 2008, a much less well-known case that dropped about the same time as Boumediene v. Bush. Same day. Yep. Uh, And so a companion case of sorts. And it's really relevant, but whether it's precisely (laughs) on point is a question we will debate. But either way, I mean, I think it's actually a useful excuse for us to have a longer chat about what exactly the rules are about when the U.S. can and cannot transfer detainees to third-party countries. Absolutely. A hugely important topic. Uh, And that will segue nicely to our third topic, which is uh, there's the ongoing trial of the alleged Benghazi attack mastermind Abu Qatala, Ahmed Abu Qatala. And what's interesting there is not so much what's happening uh, moment by moment in the trial, although it's fascinating. I mean, it is riveting stuff. And if you want to follow it, Charlie Savage is basically live tweeting it and then writing summary stories. So get to Charlie's Twitter account and you can monitor what's happening there. Uh, we want to talk about what happens if there's an acquittal. And that is a topic that raises some really interesting possibilities. Awkward. Awkwardness, for sure. Um, we think that'll probably exhaust our time. Uh, for several weeks now, we've been promising a rundown of North Korea sanctions. And we're saving that for the, for the slower <laughs> for, news for the, cycle. For the quiet week that may never come. May never come. But if we move quickly today somehow, this is like my students I just taught. Not going to every, every class I begin, Steve, yeah. by saying, now, if we move quickly, we're going to get to the next reading. If we move quickly. And, and we don't. We're... Uh, I t- as I tell them, we're interested in depth, not breadth, of coverage. So so I, I agree with that. We've also been promising for several weeks a preview of the baseball playoffs. We better um, get on that because it's underway. I'm, so I'm going to go on a limb and predict that the winner of the American League wild card is going to be the Yankees. Oh, I, you know, I'm going to do you one better, and I'm going to call for some serious uh, – uh, 
Televised heroism by Aaron Judge. <laughs> How about that? God, kind of a we heroism. Are. I mean, the guy hit a homer into the shortest porch in Major League Baseball. He hit the stuffing out of it, and it was great TV. And it was, Didi's, Didi's homer was the bigger play in that game. Uh, it, sure, it mattered more, but the one that happened while my daughter was standing in front of the TV and ah, I was explaining well, who Aaron go. Judge was, I was <laughs> saying, you know, they say he's really great. She's looking at me like, you know, 52 home runs, what does that mean? And then, whack! It all right, was, so yeah. so insofar as right. it confirms your mystical powers, I'm all for it. It's like it's like the Volkswagen Super Bowl commercial with the kid who's trying to like use the force to get the car to turn yes, on. Yes, as long as it creates magic. And and the dad standing behind him in the kitchen using yes, the remote to yes. right. So so, so I, yes, I have done this many times. I opened the tailgate for my for uh, my nephews. They in particular have been convinced perhaps that the force is involved. All right, speaking of the force, we are forced. How do you like that? Oh. To move to our first topic, which is the Supreme Court developments. We've already noted that you got cert granted I in your I got cert cases, granted in my three amazing. cases, which is shocking. Okay, so we will definitely, uh, the show is going on the road in probably January. <laughs> there will be a hello from Washington. Really? Uh, I think we got to. I'll, okay. I'll, if, I, if I can possibly do it, I'm I mean, coming I'll, up there I'll be, to watch I'll be this. there. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be there. Moral support. I don't yet know if I agree with you on the merits, but I'll be there for moral support. <laughs> don't worry. Plenty of folks have emailed me to tell me that they don't agree with me on the merits um, in emails that have revealed their 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 deep understanding of the case. Oh, is that how it is that how it goes? Oftentimes, yeah. Uh, but but perhaps to our listeners, the much more interesting Supreme Court development could come tomorrow. Um, so originally, we talked about this before. The two really high-profile military commission cases, Al-Balul, which is about whether the commissions can try domestic offenses and not just international war crimes. Hugely important. Hugely important. Because material support and conspiracy or, you know, these sorts of charges are at stake. Right. So Al-Balul, which is really the whole sort of jurisdictional edifice of the commissions, um, is on the conference list for tomorrow, meaning the justices are scheduled to discuss it. Um, well, it assumes at least one justice wants to discuss it. I think it's a safe bet that they will discuss it. And perhaps as early as Monday, although I doubt it, um, maybe grant cert. Monday could be the earliest we hear if they're going to deny cert. That would obviously be a big deal one way or the other. Also, the Al Nashiri case. Now, the one little tidbit that we learned this week is Nashiri had originally been scheduled for tomorrow's conference with Al Balul. It has now been rescheduled, which is a weird Supreme Court procedural move to basically take a case off of a conference list for any number of reasons. Um, in Nashiri's case, I think the most likely reason is the complexity of the filings, several of which are under seal mm. because they contain classified information that's not typical or common for the justices. Um, and the record is a little bit messy. And so I think it's possible that one of the justices just wanted a little more time. Okay. Um, which, which I think obviously is, is a sign of nothing other than attention being paid. Okay. Now, what's interesting to me about that is I would have thought they were going to lump Balu and Nashiri together. But of course, you don't have to. They're, they do present separate issues. And this just goes to show that they're not yoked. I mean, they might end up yoked together, but they can be dis- considered and are apparently being looked at as on separate tracks. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible that they get to conference tomorrow and say, oh, wait, what happened to that other case? Yeah, exactly. Like, wait, I thought we had two of these. Right. Well, wait. And so it's possible that the result of tomorrow is that Balul gets rescheduled to whatever conference Nashiri exactly. gets rescheduled to. All this is just to say that as excited and relieved as I am, that our little military commission cases got granted. Um, the big ones are still in the offing. And, and I think our issue is important, actually, more so outside the military commissions right. than in the military commissions. I think that's right. But the military commissions, what really matters is what the court's going right. to decide in the next couple of weeks. Right. So we will all be looking closely at the list, the orders list on Monday. 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Great. I ought to be up by then. Well, I was going to say, or, you know, if only one of us were always, you know, tweeting about the orders list. I think that I think I will rely on the hard work of others to learn what happens At there. Steve underscore Vladek. All right. <laughs> um, so speaking of sort of the Supreme Court and military stuff. Yes. Good point. So, you know, I sometimes feel like a one man band um, when I'm when I'm sort of out in the out in the Twitter ether. Um, and I don't just mean when I'm picking fights with Governor Abbott. Um, right. But but like when I'm trying to sort of figure out why no one's paying attention to a topic on the American citizen detained in Iraq case mm-hmm. um, where we've know not much more today than we knew a week ago. Um, the what, what I find most striking is there were two different congressional hearings yesterday in the Armed Services Committee. The House Armed Services Committee had a hearing. Senate Armed Services Committee had a hearing where the witnesses were Secretary of Defense Mattis and Chairman Dunford, right, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Six-plus hours of testimony. Do you know how many questions there were about this case? I assume zero. Zero. Well, I guess that didn't surprise me that much, given the zero. magnitude of the North Korea and Iran issues that are on their plates. They didn't really talk that much about North Korea or Iran. 
What were they talking about? So the, the ostensible topic was <laughs> Afghanistan Afghanistan and South Asia, the security situation. Okay, and, well, very important topics, but I agree. In light of that, if you're right about them not actually talking about Iran. I mean, they did a little. Korea. All right. Well, then they should have found time to say, oh, by the way, what's the deal with I mean, that no, U.S. citizen? No and, congressman, no senator in six hours of hearings thought to ask one question about a U.S. citizen in military detention overseas. So my, my descriptive claim about this is that if and when we get a name for this person and if and when you therefore begin to learn details, like the family begins offering accounts that are more sympathetic, et cetera, then it becomes a story. It, it's actually it's hard to write that story, right. I think. And that's why we're not seeing a lot of coverage of it when you, you have a John Doe. Um, we do have these handful of journalists who are, you know, ball hawking this issue. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're getting statements. And one of the most extraordinary things is someone asked the question. I'm not exactly sure who posed the question. The question was posed to an unnamed senior administration official. You know, what options are you looking at? They acknowledge that they're certainly looking at the possibility of hybrid model. They're in military detention now, being interrogated, but maybe they get clean teamed. Maybe they get brought to the U.S. for prosecution, like Abu Qatala was, uh, or Maybe they turn him over to the Iraqis, and it was just dun, 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 dun. for prosecution there. So that at least got you and I quite interested <laughs> because there's a ton of interesting and important law in that space. Because, well, let's give a little bit of background. So those who don't follow this issue may be wondering, well, have we had this scenario before? Someone captured in Iraq who's a U.S. citizen, Iraq or Syria. Well, we've had versions of it. We had most recently Mohammed Kuwais who was a U.S. citizen who had gone over. There's, there's lots of complexities about how, how much his heart was into this and whether and to what extent he, he ran away from ISIS once he got over there and realized what was going on. But he ended up being uh, in U.S. custody over there, military custody, and then was pretty quickly brought back and prosecuted. And actually, his sentencing hearing, if I'm not mistaken, I think is next week. So, um, so the Weiss case is a kind of a relatively run-of-the-mill application of what you would think the, the, the path of least resistance here. When you capture a U.S. citizen fighting for the Islamic State, you may hold him in interrogation for the short term over there in military detention, but then you pretty quickly bring him back here and they're charged with conspiracy or material support as the facts may warrant. Um, for another earlier example where they chose the transfer to Iraq path, we've got to go back to the to the earlier period, the post-invasion period where we had the sustained boots-on-the-ground presence the first time around. Um, the Munaf litigation, which is actually two cases. Uh, was it Omar? Uh, Omar and, and Munaf. Munaf, two American citizens, separate fact patterns. At least Omar was al-Qaeda in Iraq affiliated was the claim. And, of course, that is the Islamic State. So you do have a little bit of continuity and similarity there. Um, he was alleged to have been involved in, and was captured by the U.S. military and, and said to be basically an AQI member and involved in these plots and was held for quite a period of time in U.S. military custody. And in, same with Manoff in a different fact pattern. And the idea was for like all the other detainees we had over there in this period, the disposition plan was to shift them as much as possible into Iraqi domestic criminal prosecutions. And, and what was going on there was they were trying to do the same thing they were doing with all the Iraqi detainees with these guys who had American citizenship. They did not want to be transferred. They brought litigation, uh, mainly focused, not entirely, but mainly focused on the idea that they might be tortured if they got into Iraqi custody. And so they, they brought uh, litigation both under the due process clause and under a statute that contains uh, a prohibition on, on transferring where there's a, a real risk of torture. FARA. The, yeah, with the acronym is for the, the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act of 1998, which contains I'll be with, here all week. which contains within it the statutory implementation of the Convention Against Tortures Prohibition, uh, known known widely in international law circles as the Non-Refoulement Obligation. That's the obligation not to transfer someone to another country's custody if it's um, I, I forget what the the, st the treaty language is. The way the U.S. government interprets it is more likely than not that they'll be tortured. So. Uh, they brought that claim. It went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts, in an opinion under the heading Munaf v. Guerin, rejected their claims. T Steve, tell us about what what actually was decided. So uh, Munaf is a very strange case, um, and I should I should preface this by saying that I was an amicus in Munaf, and so as per usual, I am not a wholly disinterested party. All right. Um, Part of what made Munaf a strange case was the posture. So, I mean, Bobby just did a, a fantastic recitation of the facts. Um, the D.C. Circuit actually issued somewhat contradictory decisions in Omar and Munaf separately on their way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the, 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 the contrast was about whether the courts even had jurisdiction. 
Um, so there was this whole fight about whether the U.S. courts had jurisdiction over a habeas petition by a U.S. citizen who was technically in what the government called multinational custody. Yeah, I got to say, I always thought that argument was ridiculous. Well, that, that it wasn't, you know, the idea that it was a multinational coalition as the framework within which the U.S. military was operating uh, and that somehow that meant that they weren't really in U.S. custody. They were in this sort of abstract international coalition's custody. Come on. I mean, I agree with that. Um, I actually, the one of the first major articles I wrote um, as a law professor was about the Heroda case, the the World War, the post World War II Supreme Court case about um, eleven of the Class A war criminals from the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal trying to challenge their convictions and sentences collaterally through habeas in the Supreme Court. The government relied, you know, invoked Heroda and said, "Hey, this is just like that." Yeah, um, it wasn't just like it at well, all. Well, so Munaf was closer, right? So the critical factual difference between Munaf and Omar is Munaf had already been convicted yeah. by the CCCI, the Central Criminal Court of Iraq. Um, and so at least there, the government had a plausible claim that the detention of Munaf was at the behest of this foreign criminal process. Right. We were just providing jailer services on an outsourced basis, in effect. Even then, though, the habeas statute says if you're in, you know, the habeas statute right. doesn't care why you're in custody. Right. It cares whose custody you're in. I, I agree that Munaf is a, is, a, is a closer case, whereas Shaki Omar, he, w- he was our guy. Like, we'd captured him. Yep. We were holding him in custody. And the process, and by the way, if you're interested in, in the process of well, how did it work in those years in terms of military detention versus funneling people to uh, Iraqi prosecutorial custody, um, I wrote a piece, uh, um, basically the lessons of the forgotten uh, war, uh, about all about the changing frameworks over time. But it goes into great detail about this. Uh, and this was a fairly conventional setup where our outpath, the uh, long-term disposition option for our many tens of thousands of detainees in Iraq was to get them into the prosecutorial process. Totally. All right, so that's the, the habeas jurisdictional question. So, so it goes up to the Supreme Court in this odd posture where all the fighting below had been over jurisdiction. Um, and whether, in I believe Omar's case, uh, the petitioner was entitled to a preliminary injunction barring his transfer. Um, so the Supreme Court, you know, takes cert. Um, here's our argument: issues a, an opinion on the merits that gets completely overshadowed by Boumediene, which comes down the same day, um, the major Guantanamo case. Um, and the court unanimously dispenses with the jurisdictional argument and says, "Come on, guys." Yeah. You know, yeah. these two back of the hand, right? These two Americans are in the actual custody of the United States. That is the beginning and the end of the conversation about whether the U.S. courts have jurisdiction over their habeas right. petitions. So that makes clear that this John Doe person right now, once somebody can figure out who could represent him and get the authority to do so, he'll have uh, habeas jurisdiction for his case. But Munaf goes on in the uh, a slightly less uniform Supreme Court in Munaf goes on to the merits. Which is interesting because they hadn't been reached below, right? So yeah. so the Supreme Court is very fond of saying we're a court of review, not first view. Yeah. But the Chief Justice actually went out of his way to say, but in this case, we're going to make an exception. Yeah. Well, which I think was actually entirely appropriate. As he explained, we have a situation here where we, we have an ongoing combat zone situation the central feature of our detention policy is to funnel people into Iraqi custody. This has significant diplomatic ramifications if we were to determine on the merits, if any court were to determine on the merits, that you actually can't transfer to these people. Uh, it would have implications for the other detainees, too. Roberts, I think, correctly determined we need to give an answer to this now. Yeah, although, so here's my one objection. I, 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 I'm I, the last person who is going to quibble with the Supreme Court asserting its authority, right? I mean, I, I am a firm believer that the Supreme Court has a lot more authority than it often exercises. The problem is that the because of the way the cases had had gotten to the Supreme Court, the records were underdeveloped, mm-hmm. the claims had not been fully vetted, and as we're going to talk about in a second, the Supreme Court ducks the single hardest issue in the case on the ground that it hadn't properly been raised. Right. right? And there my is and, that. and my reaction to that is, well, no, no, duh, it hadn't properly been raised. They hadn't had a chance. Like the whole fight in the lower court was, is there even jurisdiction in these cases? Was it? Is it fair to say that? The well, you know what let's let's do it in order. So let's okay. first talk about the issue they do get to. They focus on the due process. The claim that the due process clause in its substantive guise, that is our old friend substantive due process, in effect that it would shock the conscience if you were to transfer someone in a circumstance where it's more likely than not that they'd be tortured. Um, tell us about how the court resolved that. So the court says that's very serious. That would be really problematic. We're really worried about that. Fortunately, the executive branch has told us that they are confident that the Iraqi criminal justice system does not torture. 
um, and that therefore they, uh, and indeed that they would not transfer these guys to Iraq if they felt otherwise. So this is this is a recurring issue that had come up a bunch. It came up in Guantanamo litigation. Yes. It has long been the posture of the United States that our policy is we will not transfer. To the standard is we will not transfer to torture if it's if it's more likely than not. Now, the State Department has this whole process of, of thinking about that, obtaining diplomatic assurances from the other side about how the person will be treated. And, of course, you can imagine the battle lines in the debate, of course, are drawn in terms of those who feel those are not worth the paper they're written on and those who feel that the paper can't be second-guessed. Or, or if I may, if I put, may put it slightly differently, yeah. the real fight is even if everyone agrees that the standard is more likely than not, more likely than not according to whom? Exactly. Yeah. Right? Who gets to decide? Is it the State Department and then the courts don't second-guess the determination, or is it the State Department but subject to independent verification by the judiciary? That ends up being really most of the fight here. Right. So, that's, so the doctrinal question is really a question of deference. How much deference, if any, does the government get, does the executive branch get, when it has made a decision that the more likely than not standard's not satisfied, or can the court approach it afresh and perhaps disagree? And then important to mention that, that Roberts frames his analysis of this question not in, he doesn't say this is arising in the vacuum, he says this arises against the backdrop of an ongoing military operation in the territory of another country. And he, he goes out of his way to name a bunch of factors. And I think this is really critical for the, the holding element when you pin down which part of Munaf is really a holding. Um, among the factors that are mentioned, first of all, um, it was the case that the government in this case had concluded that there was not a uh, more likely than not to torture scenario. So the government had had made a judgment as opposed to a situation where the government hadn't made a judgment. Secondly, the situation was ongoing armed conflict. And then the real sort of fact-specific stuff. A, these petitioners had gone to Iraq on their own uh, own recognizance. They had done it on their own will. They had right. been brought They into, voluntarily entered Iraq. Yeah, we, hadn't, we didn't take them there. They went there on their own. They were captured in country, not elsewhere, and brought in. Um, they were still held there, so so it was so them. it's Iraq cubed. It was Iraq cubed, and the, of course, the significance of that is it means that there was no engineering by the United States to put it in a situation where Iraqi sovereign authority to prosecute crimes against Iraqi law was implicated. That all came about fair and square. Um, they were alleged to have violated Iraqi law. There was no one denying that the things they allegedly did were crimes in Iraq. Uh, and then, critically, I think. It was very clear that the Iraqi government was trying to prosecute them, was asking the United States to send them over. That was super clear in Munafsk where say, there'd actually been a trial. But there clearly was process pending. There it wasn't uncertain whether, you know, Shaki Omar was gonna be prosecuted. The Iraqis were waiting for him. So I, I'm going to quibble just at the margin of that. I think I think I think there. I don't know where on the scale of probabilities the Omar case was. Certainly Munaf was there. I think there was actually some. Again, this goes back to my frustration with the underdeveloped record. Right, that there wasn't really a full opportunity to develop the record on these issues because the Supreme Court pretermitted the whole issue by jumping the. Fair enough. It but, could be that it could be that I'm assuming things that just weren't developed that could have come out the other way. Roberts at least asserts that the government of Iraq had asked for both these guys, and this was a situation right. where. The the other sovereign was poised to take offense, right? So in That's those the right, right. So in those circumstances, the the holding of Munaf is that the due process clause does not f- prohibit transfer so long as the government avers that the yeah. transfer is not to torture. Right. That those as long as those conditions are met, due process is satisfied when the person is then tortured, even if they think the government's got the prediction wrong. Right now, um, I would have argued had I been there, and I sort of was. Um, that even if the due process clause, you know, is not a sort of strong constraint here, FARA, which we mentioned before, right, the 1998 statute that implements our non-refoulement obligations under the Torture Convention is more, how do I say, um, aggressive? So um, I'm, I'm curious about that. I know that's your view. Yes. Let's just clarify. So that, that issue was in the briefing. It just got such short shrift. And so Roberts included this footnote in the opinion. Footnote. But, but, but the yep. lead into the footnote is even better. Okay. Yeah, read it to us. So, okay. But, um, this is on uh, page 703 of the U.S. reports. Petitioners briefly argue, this is after he has resolved the due process claim. This is after all the language that is now quoted all the time about how it's not the judiciary's job to second-guess determinations. Right. That was all in the due process part of the discussion. When he finally turns to Farah, here's what he says. Petitioners briefly argue that their claims of potential torture may not be readily dismissed on the basis of these principles because FARA prohibits transfer when torture may result. Neither petitioner asserted a FARA claim in his petition for habeas. It's not quite true, but 
you know, it's the 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 petitions were very sort of perfunctory, right. you know, opening documents. Um, and the act was not raised in any of the certiorari filings before this court. Okay, but they were in the merits briefs, um, right? Because remember, again, the whole fight at cert was whether there was jurisdiction. Why would you brief the FARA question if the question presented is, do we have jurisdiction? Okay. This is my pet peeve. Um, <laughs> I can see that. Okay. Um, even in the merits brief, the habeas petitioners hardly discuss the issue, to which I respond, again, because the merits brief was about jurisdiction. The government treats the issue in kind. Under such circumstances, the chief says, we will not consider the question, period, footnote six. Right. And in footnote six, he goes on to offer reasons why were that issue to be considered, there are at least a couple of reasons to think that FARA is a rule for immigration removal proceedings not necessarily applicable to this very different overseas military transfer context. So there are two different arguments in footnote six. The, the second one is the FARA is immigration specific argument. Um, it's worth noting that by the time the chief decided Munaf, um, six circuits had expressly held to the contrary. Um, that FARA was, in fact, enforceable outside right. the context of removal proceedings. Um, the chief, you know, there was no briefing on this, so the chief was unaware that the case law had already said— And it's all dicta anyways. This just, is pure I, dicta. I, I, so the second—the the first part of footnote 6 is I actually think the more interesting one and the one that's more likely to be good law. Um, so the chief says in footnote 6, um, We express no opinion on whether Munaf and Omar may be permitted to amend their respective pleas to raise a FARA claim on remand— um, the act speaks to situations where a detainee is being, quote, returned, unquote, to a country. Um, let me skip the quote. Da, 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 da. It is not settled, the Chief Justice writes, that the act addresses the transfer of an individual located in Iraq to the government of Iraq. Arguably, such an individual is not being returned to a country. He is right. already there. Right. So, so he's taking the chance to say, look, we're not deciding anything, but just I'm going to give you a little bit of dicta about my views here. There's a couple of reasons why maybe FAR is not applicable here. But never mind all that. It, it, none of it's the holding. So, the, And indeed, the, the case does go on, as, as we'll explain in a minute. Oh. There is further litigation <laughs> on this issue. But just as to the, the precedential value of, of Munaf, it is true. You can't cite Munaf and say it holds that a FARA claim can't be second— a FARA claim can't be second-guessed by the judiciary when the government says, hey, the standard's not met. Um, but on the merits of that question— how, why would we think that if, if Munaf says the outcome under the due process clause is don't second guess the government on this fact pattern, yeah. why wouldn't it be the same under FARA? So I guess my argument is that unlike the due process clause, which is simply a construction of the constitutional requirement that the government should never engage in conduct that shocks the conscience, mm -hmm. right? FARA is implementing an international treaty that cares not a whit about the transferring power and is focused entirely on what is actually likely to be the case on the transferee power side, right? So, so to me, the due process clause is focused correctly on our government and on the legitimacy and validity of its representations. So I actually am not that bothered by the chief's analysis of why the due process clause requires large deference, um, right, to the executive branch. FAR is not about our government, right? FAR is about the receiving power. Um, and I just, you know, Congress passes the statute. Congress, for once, formally implements a human rights obligation into American law. You know, it seems to me that we should take it seriously. So I think that I see that distinction in how the FARA situation in its origins and in its nature doesn't present the same kind of competing constitutional concerns in the first instance. But I think in both cases, I, I think that Roberts is interpreting the due process argument, the shocks the conscience standard, which he never actually uses, shocks the conscience. Well, because he doesn't want to admit that he no, is. No one, no one wants to admit that that's what they're doing. But right. the word substantive due process, you know, that's yep. there. Yep. Um, I think they, they cash it out as a more likely than not test. And I think that the considerations of comparative institutional competence that he cites in deciding not to second-guess the executive will be every bit as present under this. It'll be the same standard and every bit as present with the statutory argument. So it seems to me that the original Munaf interpretation of the due process clause may or may not be right. I think it's right, but it may not be right. But it should be the same analysis under either one. So let me just sort of fast forward a bit. I mean, you mentioned the lower court cases afterwards. Um, if folks are interested in this topic, there's a fantastic division within the en banc Ninth Circuit in this case called Trinidad Garcia, which is not a military transfer case. It's an ordinary, old-fashioned criminal extradition case. Because, you know, the whole argument that FAR is only about immigration cases, whatever you think of Munaf as a military detention case, the real problem for it is extradition, 
right? Extradition is the classic context where FARA actually has a lot of force outside the immigration context. Right, exactly. No, that, that makes tons of sense. And, and I think that is probably right that it should apply in that sense. So, but the Ninth Circuit fractures 16 ways from Sunday um, in answering that question. So 11-judge um, on banc panel, because it's the Ninth Circuit, one judge, just Kaczynski, thinks the court lacks jurisdiction. Um, this is actually what the D.C. Circuit will hold on remand in Omar um, because of the jurisdiction stripping provisions of the Real ID Act of 2005. Oh, man, this gets complicated. Um, three judges think that um, the case is over the second that the Secretary of State signs the extradition papers, um, right, on the theory that the Secretary of State signed extradition papers is the only administrative step that has to happen to satisfy FARA because the Secretary of State doesn't have the power to sign the extradition papers unless she believes it's more likely than not that they won't be transferred to torture. Okay, three more judges say no, like we have a little bit of room to actually look past whether the Secretary of State just signed a piece of paper, right? Um, and then the this is three, six, seven, and then the last couple of judges say actually we should do a full like merits review because FAR is not about what the U.S. government says, FAR is about what's actually true in the Philippines. Good heavens, I, I have to confess, <laughs> like, that completely bewilders me. But but just to just to show you, I mean, but if our if our listeners are actually interested in this, we have not put you all to sleep. Um, just to show you how this cashes out in a case that's less fraught than Munaf and Omar, there really are four different views of the appropriate role of the courts vis-a-vis FARA, and all four show up in this 2012 en banc Ninth Circuit decision. Now, you mentioned that on remand from Munaf, Shaki Omar's case went, you know, there was an amendment to the complaint trying to present the FARA issue. And when it got to the D.C. Circuit, the court thought that the Real ID Act weighed in and, and had a big impact here. Does that mean that the same thing will be true for this potential John Doe litigant? That's a great question. Um, at, le- I, at least if the petition's filed in the D.C. Circuit. So I, I don't think so, right? Be- well, they might a- be well advised if and when the family yeah, ever gets wind of this. They might not want to file in the D.C. Circuit. While Omar's still on the books. Um, insofar as their claim is is FARA, right? right. So, so again, right. right, I mean, all Omar, I call it Kind of has to be, right? Or else they're in trouble. So I well, call, well, oh, can I argue against myself real quick? They can argue due process again. They just have to show the facts are distinct. And we neglected to say a moment so, ago. So this, so this yeah. is where I was going, okay. right? Yeah, go so, with it. So Omar 2, as opposed to Omar 1, right? Yeah. Omar 2 is specifically about a FARA claim on the facts of Omar, which is Iraq cubed. Yeah. Okay? Um, the John Doe American citizen who we're talking about today, first, there is one critical, or two, well, one at least, critical different fact, which is that he was not picked up in Iraq. Captured right. in Syria. Captured in Syria. It was the U.S. who brought him into Iraq. Um, even on the Chief Justice's, I think, st- strained reading of FARA, the John Doe citizen was returned to Iraq. We brought him to Iraq. Well, so I, I can well imagine he might say returned. He was never there to begin with. This isn't a this isn't a situation we're taking a person back to their country of origin. But we're extraditing him. Well, we've got him there in our custody, which muddies the water further. But here, look, I think the key thing about this distinction is why do we care about the locus of original capture and the movements, the things you're referring to as, as the uh, Iraq cubed? As it's used in Munaf, those factors seem to be relevant insofar as they show why Iraq's sovereign authority to prosecute is very much fairly in play here. On that model, if we had captured this guy, say, in Afghanistan, doing things in Afghanistan that don't really implicate Iraq, um, and then we bring him to Iraq and say, hey, well, the Iraqis want to prosecute him now, it does seem like we've engineered things a bit. Syria is, is, a, is a between case, right? It's not as clear as if you captured him in Iraq, fighting for ISIS in Iraq. But f- capturing him in Syria, fighting for ISIS in the combined Syria-Iraq theater is pretty close. And I think Iraq's prosecutorial sovereignty is, is, is nearly as clearly implicated here as in Munaf. So I think it's a distinction, but I'm not sure it's a salient enough distinction to, to enable a due process claim to escape the presidential force of Munaf. So I do think that they may need to be under far. Uh, that said, let me, let me counter argument myself. There's one factor so far that does seem from the public record to be critical and missing. We actually don't have any public evidence yet that Iraq wants this Well, that's, guy. so I was going to say, so unlike in Omar and Munaf, where it looked to the chief like these guys were trying to use the U.S. legal system to prevent an otherwise perfectly lawful transfer, right? Here it's not, I mean, again, we just don't know a lot. Right. But leave that aside. Wait, just to finish that thought. Yeah, please. If 
we do get a chance to prosecute him, to have the Iraqis prosecute him and do transfer him over, at that point, then almost by definition, we'll have evidence that Iraq says they want him. What's interesting is maybe an external factor, the Trump distrust factor that's been on such stark right. display in the travel ban litigation right. um, may cause the court to look at a claim that, look, the Iraqis won and we're just trying to turn him over to Iraq. More Could look in a different different yeah. light. Yeah. Well, so, cert- I mean, listen, certainly some of the deference that Munaf is predicated on is the notion that the executive branch is speaking with one voice, right? And that at the time of Munaf, there was no disagreement between, say, DOD, state, and the president about what was right. true. Um I don't think I have to hypothesize a world in which the Secretary of State would say one thing and the President would say something else. Well, what could you possibly mean? Exactly. All right, but but before we lose the thread, I mean, I, I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the forest for the trees here, because yep. there are a lot of trees. Um, if John Doe ever does get into federal court with a habeas petition, the FARA claim is going to be the least of it, right? And so whatever Omar II does or doesn't say about the jurisdiction of the federal court to hear a FARA claim... Again, his core claims are going to be whether his underlying detention is lawful in the first place. I, so I actually disagree a little bit. I, I think that if the government's posture is to keep him in our custody, yeah. yes, certainly. If they name him and his family gets counsel and they bring an action and, and, the, and it seems like we're not trying to turn him over either to our own prosecutors or to the Iraqis, yeah, that's central and huge and the government will be in potentially trouble there. If what happens is... Uh, it, this litigation begins because we're trying to transform to Iraqi custody for prosecution. Um, that issue isn't obviously it'll get brought up, but I don't think that'll be the issue. It'll be the FARA and due process issues. Well, so 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 in that regard, so so let me just say sort of two last things that before we because I think I think we probably exhausted yeah. the. Um, so one, we haven't talked about Justice Souter's concurrence in Minoff. Right. Yep. right. Three votes. Three justices run out of their way basically to say, listen, we agree with just about all of this, but if we actually ever had a case where a petitioner had pretty compelling evidence that he was being transferred to torture and the U.S. government was going to do it anyway, Souter says, I'm not sure we wouldn't then step in and say, hold on, everybody. Is it fair to say that Souter's concurrence is to signal that while the majority might be read as calling for binding deference, the rule ought to be Great weight deference. Yeah, substantial deference, yeah. you might say. Yeah. Um, I Capable totally, of being overcome. And, and I think, not only do I think that that's what Souter's saying, I actually think that in practice that will be what turns out to be true. I think that's true for a lot of uh, supposedly binding deference scenarios because, you know, take the prize cases. We did that in class in con law this morning. Justice Scrooge. We did it yesterday. Oh, did you? All right. We're glad we're on the same page. Quite literally. Um, <laughs> in the uh, prize cases, Justice Greer is talking about Lincoln's determination. That By the way, sorry, everybody, prize cases, 1863 Supreme Court decision about whether the blockade imposed at the beginning of the legal, uh, Civil War was legal. And, it, and we all teach it, or at least a lot of us teach it, because it introduces— or You and I might be the only two people oh, who teach it. Oh, I'm sure others will. We're going to hear about that on Twitter. Um, it introduces, or into Supreme Court precedent, the idea of, look, the Congress has the, the duty under Article One and the Declare War Clause to uh, initiate hostilities through declaration of war. But if it's defensive, you don't have to have a declaration of war. That's a, not only a presidential power, but a duty. And, but then Greer goes on to say, um, by the way, though, the question of whether the fact pattern you're presented with fits in one bucket or the other, offense or defense, that's to be determined by the by the elected branch. By him. By him. And his blockade order was itself sufficient evidence. Um, and so that looks like binding deference. And in class just now, you know, we talked about this and, and we made the point that, look, if you come up with a extreme enough baloney invocation of, of a defensive posture, it's doubtful that the courts would simply say, well, you know, as I said in the prize cases, our hands are really tied here. We just can't second guess it. In an extreme enough fact pattern, sure. Now, one last comment on this transfer business. And then I've got one last comment. Okay, my last comment is we don't have much information about this person. There is no pending litigation. <laughs> the guy could be transferred. He could be transferred already for yes. all we know. And then it's possible that the case will eventually present for the first time with the person already in Iraqi custody, which will really muddy up the waters because it will raise the question, can you even get him back? And is it part of the court's power to, what, order the order the executive branch to do what it can diplomatically to undo what it had done? Ah, uh, you said the first time, Bobby. Uh, you don't remember the case of the Algerian Guantanamo detainee Farhi Mohammed. Well, I don't mean it's the issue's never arisen. I mean, no, no, no. In, I mean, he in, was he was. I, I'm saying that this would be the first time we'd hear this guy's name in his litigation. Oh, I, I'm begins. sorry, right? Because we yes. have in some of the Guantanamo cases that we did transfer and then have the yes, litigation. So take place. that's where I wanted you to go. Explain what happens in such cases based on these prior examples. Uh, nothing. Yep. Um, I mean, you know, Justice Ginsburg actually issued a dissent from the denial of a stay in the Mohammed case, partly because she was like, "What the heck is going on?" 
ton. Um, but in the far, I mean, the Farhi Muhammad case is actually a, a, a very little known weird moment in the transfer litigation where um, there are a couple of really loud dissents in the D.C. Circuit and where the Supreme Court almost comes close to staying his transfer. But no. But, um, does, but does not. Um, yeah. And again, where the issues were the same. So this brings me to my last point, right, which is um, I wrote a very, very long blog post um, for Lawfare back in June of 2012, the title of which is Why the Moonoff Sequels Matter, um, a primer on FARA Real ID and the role of the courts in the transfer extradition cases. Um, the bottom line of that post was sort of twofold. One, the D.C. Circuit's decision on remand in Omar is a completely indefensible analysis of the jurisdictional question um, and leaves an awful lot to be desired. Um, but in any event, two, there is now a complete and ir, uh, uh, how do I say, unavoidable circuit split on the exact question we've just been talking about for half an hour about the exact role of the courts in non-immigration extradition and transfer cases where there's at least some concern about torture, um, where the D.C. Circuit's gone one way and the Ninth Circuit's gone another and the Fourth Circuit's sort of somewhere in between. Um, there was a cert petition in Trinidad y Garcia, the Filipino extradition case I mentioned. Is that the Ninth Circuit one? Yep. yep. Uh, there was an amicus brief that I wrote in support of the cert petition in that case. Of course there was. And the Supreme Court said, feh. Yeah, well, maybe now that you've got a little more momentum with these cert. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, now that now, now they granted one case, I'm in. <laughs> Except that on Monday they denied certain another case. I'm co-counseling. Well, you can't win them all. Um, you can't in the Supreme Court. You, you know, you, you can't, can't win do, most of them. Can't win most of them. Anyway, all this is to say, like, this is a mess. The law is a mess, and I have no faith that if we actually get there, it's going to be an easy an easy out. Can you imagine if you're if you're in the an administration lawyer grappling with this right now, and you see all this train wreck, or, or maybe you listen to this episode and you, <laughs> and you come to appreciate what a what a mess. The area is, and you think, well, okay, like so, let's prosecute the guy. But the prosecutors are telling you we don't have good admissible evidence, and we're not going to have good admissible evidence. It's too risky. You can, you're you're potentially going to get an acquittal, if not a dismissal of the indictment. Like, all right, well, let's just hold him as a military detainee. Oh my God, now you're inviting litigation to the AMF question. This is a this is a uh, difficult so situation, listen, which is a good way to wrap this up because I think we're you know 40 minutes in, we probably yep. should should turn. Indeed, but, we should. But but I just want to say, um, all roads point to not doing what it looks like the government is doing right now, which is provoking litigation, right? Like all roads point to tying this up with a nice neat bow sooner rather than later, maybe not today or tomorrow, but, you know, before this ends up in court. But if the neat bow you have in mind is bringing them to the United States to face civilian criminal yeah. prosecution, but the relevant U.S. attorneys are saying, look, we don't have good evidence. We've got intelligence. We don't have admissible evidence. Then they've got a terrible dilemma. But, if they've got admissible oh evidence, then of course they should just prosecute. It's a t- a guy who goes to Syria to fight for ISIS and you can't pin a 2339B charge on him? You know, what, what if the reason, you know, this guy was captured not by us, but by the SDF fighters. Yeah. And if all of this is based on trust in what they say was going on and the guy has some kind of, you know, story. Benign, benign excuse. You still put him on trial and you trust the jury to do the right thing. Yeah. No, I think, that, I think that's, of course, where you end up. But my point is it may not be as easy to go prosecution as, as we think it is. Well, uh, no, speaking of which, right? Speaking of which. That segue to Segway. Ah- Ahmed Abu We, we, we Abu need Kitala. a segue bell. We do need a segue bell. So ding, ding, ding. Abu Qatala is on trial right now. It's uh, already past the point where they litigate whether the military detention and interrogation phase of his experience in the hybrid model that is the detention up front, then prosecution on the back end. It's already been resolved. We've talked about it on prior shows. What's worth talking about right now, other than just commenting on how fascinating the story unfolding in court is, it's the question of what happens if there's an acquittal. Now, let me say, I doubt there will be an acquittal. Um, the government wins most of these cases. Uh, I, we will see. We'll all be reading Charlie Savage's account of how the evidence is unfolding. But you never know. And so if there's an acquittal, this case goes from being sort of another DOJ win in a terrorism case, and they've got loads of them, to suddenly being what uh, the Galani prosecution almost was with its very near miss, uh, where there was some acquittals on some charges, but then a conviction on one. And, And it becomes sort of exhibit A for those who want to suggest that the civilian criminal justice model doesn't work or doesn't work as well as people claim. In that case, obviously, the politics of Benghazi become intertwined with the politics of uh, using the civilian courts. But from the practical perspective of the Trump administration, you have this guy whom you believe was the mastermind of the Benghazi attacks. And the moment he's acquitted, Steve, is that guy going to walk out of the courtroom? 
What um, are the what not are the far. Options? Yeah, what's going to happen? I think I think we both agree on what would likely happen in the immediate moment. Well, so I mean, I don't think there's I don't think it's hard to imagine what the government's case would be for placing him into removal proceedings. Right. So, um, so an ICE officer or two will be presumably sitting in the courtroom, having already arranged with the marshal service and right. bureau of prisons the physical sort of the. Uh, kind of Indiana Jones moment of swiping the idol and putting the bag of sand on. He'll slide right out of Bureau of Prisons custody and right into ICE custody. And, and, and I think, I mean, it's worth stressing that um, even if there is some question about the immigration proceedings, you know, the, a statute that we talk about from time to time in national security law that's still never been used, um, Section 412 of the USA Patriot Act, which is 8 USC Section 1226A, not parentheses A, it's 1226A. Capital A. Ca- uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, allows the government to detain any non-citizen um, who is suspected of involvement in terrorism, loosely defined, mm-hmm. for seven days. Right. So they have a seven-day window to grab the guy. And, and within just figure the, it out. And if they're on top of their game, and I sure hope they are, they've already actually got it lined up to have a proper uh, removal proceeding in place for this guy, you would think. I, I suspect that's the case. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Um, a, if you decide to genuinely just try to remove him, send him back to Libya— well, you know, how's that going to go? And, and by the way, uh, here comes the FARA claim, yeah. right? So, so that'll connect our two topics. Da, 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 da. So he's gonna he'll litigate that in the second circuit. In the second circuit, which gives us a whole new circuit oh, to play. Gosh, um, he uh, we may not want to remove him because we may not feel that the Libyan government's capable of holding this guy in custody and keeping right. him incapacitated. And so this may implicate the old Zadvidas footnote. This idea Maybe. that. In Zadvidas, if you, if you have a situation where you have a removable person, but you're having trouble finding the place to remove them to, Zadvidas stands, I, tell, correct me if I'm wrong, for the general principle that as a matter of due process, you can't actually have that going on in perpetuity. But footnote, we're not saying one way or the other whether that would be true if it was a national security or terrorism threat. So so two two things about Zadvidas, which is, is ironically, Zadvidas, not I have no idea, or okay. Zadvidas, Z. Um, two case. things about the Supreme Court's, ironically, last decision before 9-11. Yeah. Um, right, so the first is, yes, Justice Breyer's majority opinion says nothing we say here deals with special cases like terrorism. Right. Um, and indeed, I think Section 412 of the Patriot Act was crafted very much with Zadvidas in mind, because what Section 412 contemplates is that after those seven days are over, if you've placed this terrorism suspect into removal proceedings, you can hold him for a fairly long period of time, because the statute then talks about periodic review. Yeah, Um, that's right. There's no need for periodic review in seven days, right? right? The periodic review provisions are there with contemplating the prospect. So let's call this the limbo, the the removal limbo. He could end up by design or or result in... Removal limbo. So, so, but, but let me sort of keep going here for a second. So, so Zadvitus says if you are in removal proceedings, back, it's pre ninety six, so it's it's deportation proceedings. Um, you have a due process right to not be held indefinitely pending your removal. Zadvitus says presumptively that's six months. Um, in two thousand and three, the court extends that to even those who were unlawfully present. So, in mm-hmm. what were previously called exclusion proceedings, a case called Clark versus Martinez. Um, but um, two sort of subsequent developments. In a case called JAMA, the Supreme Court says, good news, government. If you can't send them to their home country, you can send them to a third-party country. right? And so JAMA opens the door to fewer of these nowhere-to-send-them cases yeah. because JAMA allows the government to identify third-party countries willing to take the deportee. Kind of, kind of the Guantanamo solution. Kind of. Um, second, the Supreme Court just heard re-argument yesterday. Yep in yeah. Jennings versus Rodriguez about just what happens during that potentially long-term immigration detention. And I just want to stress that whatever the court ends up saying in Jennings, Abu Qatala would be the least sympathetic case for due process. He has no prior connection to the U.S. That's right. He would satisfy every statutory criteria for terrorism suspect, even if he's acquitted, ironically, right? Um, and so I think that it's just, there's no question in my mind both that the government could and very well likely would um, pursue short and potentially medium and long-term immigration detention. And just to go back to Section 412 for a second, if you read the statute, the criteria that the court is supposed to answer in the periodic review guaranteed by the statute is whether the de- the, de- the deportee, the detainee, yeah. continues to pose a threat to the public safety of the United States. Which opens the door. All of that sounds right to me as a descriptive matter. Does it mean, Steve, that there's a possible new form of non-criminal long-term detention that's not Guantanamo that's 
removal limbo where purposefully you, you, you get these kind of security cases that you bring them here and they can't be taken elsewhere, but they can't be released either. And the law maybe allows it. So I wrote a paper that got like one day's worth of attention and everyone forgot about it back in 2014 or so called Detention After the AUMF. Um, and it was part of the symposium that the Fordham Law Review hosted. Um, and the theory behind the paper was that Section 412 actually could be used as a far more normatively defensible model um, for holding the Guantanamo detainees, um, right? That sort of, if you'll forgive the very ramp overgeneralization, a shift from a Geneva III-like detention regime, where it's just based on pure membership, right? No continuing threat distinction um, to a Geneva IV regime where it's about the individual threat posed by the individual detainee. So I think that that's actually, I think we have moved Guantanamo as it currently operates with periodic review is that kind of thing. And At I, least through the end of the Obama administration. Yeah, we, we don't really know right now how that's unfolding. But I think that we end up with the possibility that the immigration system creates a similar track where what's going on in both cases is a habeas overseen and there would be habeas, yep. habeas overseen long-term non-criminal detention model in which there's periodic review to see if it still is a threat. And I think you get the same model. Now, that leads to the other possibility that Abu Qatala, whether it's through Section 412 or otherwise, is for a, a bit in the custody of ICE. And it's starting to go down this road. But then at some point they say, you know what? Well, this is silly. If you're going to do that, let's just take him to Guantanamo or take him to the brig in South Carolina following the Padilla Hamdi model, one or the other. Um, that's a real possibility. I certainly don't think what you're going to see is the moment of acquittal followed by soldiers taking custody of him and going immediately into military custody. But that, too, is a possibility. I think more likely you get a temporary move into removal proceedings, knowing that you can basically have as much time as you're going to need. And then they'll, they'll wait and see how that plays out. Maybe move him to enemy combatant status, which would be, you know, electrifying to the public. People would really get engaged on that and pay attention um, in upsetting some and pleasing others. Or trying the path, a new path, this uh, removal limbo situation. Okay, I think we've got a lot to look forward to and no answers yet. Um, Stay tuned. Should we switch now to a little bit of trivia and then let our people go? It has, uh, you know, when, 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 when Moses was in Egypt's land, <laughs> let our listeners go. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so I guess if you're, if you're not interested in Major League Baseball, now's a good chance to, to go Fly back off. to your days and, and, and hopefully we remember the music this week. Uh, if you are, actually, no, before you go. I hope uh -oh. you're still there. I do want to. I want to put in a plug for something that oh, came yeah. to my attention. Uh, Professor Eric Muller at University of North Carolina, who is who I've long admired greatly for his incredible attention to the uh, the Japanese internment cases and all the many other things surrounding his them. fantastic and, book, Free to Die for Their Country. Yeah, he's got great books, great scholarship, and just an all around really interesting scholar. Um, he spent the summer doing this really cool project. I want to flag the listeners because if you listen to podcasts, then you'll probably want to listen to this. It's called Scapegoat Cities. The podcast is called Scapegoat Cities. And it's basically a series he created that tells the stories about the impacts of the mass removal and imprisonment of Japanese Americans in that period. Uh, it's based on you know decades of archival research. It really picks up the human impact of these events that we so often talk about in these sort of dry policy and law terms. Um, Everything here is is based on true events. It's all it's all new material. Um, so check out Eric Muller's Scapegoat Cities. I, I think we're all going to you know, learn a lot from listening to that. Now that's a serious note. Let's turn to something much less serious, Steve. Let's talk about Major League Baseball playoffs. Da, 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 da. Um. So we're one game in. Yeah. So uh, first of all, about the Yankees last night. The Yankees won a home playoff game with home runs. I, I'm uh, shocked. 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 I, it was it was a load of fun. Yankee Stadium when it's really rocking like that. That that isn't sort of an iconic scene. It's not uh, the original stadium, but it's uh, still it's an iconic scene. Don't don't make me don't make me say nice things about the Yankees, please. Were you surprised that Severino got shelled like that? You know. I, I am. I think the one-game wild card playoff has its has its upsides and its downsides, and I think it is um, it is not surprising to me that especially pitchers who have not had that much experience on the big stage would come out overthrowing, missing location. Yeah. We saw both starters do that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was kind of hilarious to watch, and it actually kind of humanizes everybody. You're like, oh, well, these professional athletes are they get nervous too? How I, mean, nice. I mean, it's like you know, because I mean, it yes, it's only one game, but imagine if like you know, you go straight to game seven, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the stakes are maximum. You know, I'll note this. So I actually had Severino in my fantasy league all year. So I I was following his ups and downs. He was so good more often than not. But when he was bad, he was terrible. Right. Right. right? Uh, But man, I mean, I mean, you want to talk about bold managerial decisions? Lifting your starting pitcher one third of an inning into a you know winner go home playoff game. Hats off to Joe Girardi. I mean, talk about the right call in this instance. Well, it it worked, but I mean, it worked largely because of David Robertson, right? I mean, if Robertson doesn't come in and throw three and you know one thirds innings of basically you know I mean not perfect but basically he was awesome and he got the uh, I have a comment about Robertson in a second. I just want to note though that Severino. Actually, towards the end of the season, he pitched against Minnesota and got shelled. Right. He gave up six to yeah. Minnesota. Yeah. I, I, you know, not that that tells you anything. You can routinely see a guy get shelled against a team and then pitch great. But maybe they have their number. Maybe they, maybe they got his number. So, anyways, uh, right, David so, Robertson, I got to say something about yeah. this. And now did, I want to talk about our. Did you see the pitch that caught Sanchez yes. where yes. you don't want to get caught? Did yes. you see the replay oh of Robertson's David, reaction? David, I saw it in real time. I saw Robertson's reaction <laughs> in real time because you know I used to be. A, I mean, way back when I was a pitcher, oh, I so I that. actually usually watch the pitcher much okay. more carefully because yeah. um, you can actually sometimes see a lot even from the follow-through and the end-up position. Um, and he's, Robertson was the first person in the stadium other than Gary Sanchez who realized where that ball hit Gary Sanchez. Yeah, yeah the catcher got it where you do not want to catch it. And the replay in slow motion of Robertson's face kind of going from this look of like, you know, the sort of the pitcher's face right. to this just wide open, oh, no! Oh, no! And then covering his face <laughs> with his club. I don't want to laugh at their pain, but man, no, no. that was pretty funny. Um, all right, so so let's move on to predictions. The National League wild card game is tonight. The, the NL West play game right between the Rockies right, you and the gotta tell me I have not looked up who's who's starting uh-oh uh, Zach Greinke is starting yeah. for um Arizona I think yeah. he's 13 and one at home this year yeah, he's my, he's been fan. he was my, on my team too he's my been show fantastic. preparation and as Bobby can tell everybody I'm holding a blank I'm holding an invisible sheet of paper yeah yeah if memory serves he was 13 and one at home this year I think Sonny Gray the the trading deadline pickup yeah, yeah. is pitching for the Rockies yeah um I'm going with the Diamondbacks on that Probably, I, I actually think, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think the Diamondbacks are actually the best team in the National League. Hmm. Um, and, and you know, the Dodgers, if you take out that one incredibly hot streak, yeah. actually did not have as good a season as the Diamondbacks. Um, there are questions about their pitching. Well, and their I momentum think, is on the wrong side right. of the All-Star break. The Diamondbacks are home for this wild card game. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I the, the Diamondbacks are actually my pick to win the National League pennant and not just the wild okay. card game tonight, which of course means they'll lose tonight. Yeah, you just curse them. Way to go. Um, I will I will be rooting just because I have to against the Nationals. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go Cubs, Diamondbacks, and LCS. Diamondbacks in six. Right, so I think the Nash, a lot of this kind of depends on where is Scherzer right. in his health, right. and that matters a lot. But if if he's pretty much ninety percent and ready to go, I think the Nationals are going to get the pennant there. But we'll see. The oh, pe- oh, the pennant, not just the Cubs. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, no, all the way. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, all the way. So 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 you have the Nationals, I have the Diamondbacks. Yep. All right, American League. Um, obviously, the Yankees now go to play the Windians. I love that. I hadn't heard the Windians until you said that. That that's great. I, the the Windians, I think, are going to beat the Yankees. That'll be a really fun, be a fun series, series to watch. But the but series the, that you're excited about is the other one. Oh, I think that the Astros versus the Red Sox is such a compelling series. First of all, I mean, what's not to like about Chris Sale going up against the rejuvenated Justin Verlander in Game One? It's gonna be. It's gonna be. That, that's gonna be a. That's I gonna mean, be a show. That's fantastic. Yep. Houston has home field. Houston, uh, if they were. In baseball, they're treated as not a major market team. Somehow they just below everybody's radar screen. They're fantastic, and their best players are all sort of coming along at the right time. So what's strange about the Astros is the Astros have the, – the best players on the Astros are the kinds of players who have the games that tend to wreck havoc in the playoffs. Right, like so, the Yankees are sort of a you know strikeout, strikeout, home run team. Right, right, right. and eventually that's going to run into a pitcher. Right, yeah. that's gonna, right. But but the Astros are base runners. Yeah, they can right? manufacture runs. Manufacturing runs, and man, in the playoffs, scratching out those runs. I know last night's game doesn't seem like it, but when you get into a seven game series, no, absolutely, that's what you need. No, when you've got so Dallas Keuchel and Justin Verlander as you, as your front two is a great combo. Keuchel's been not been as good as he has been in the past. We still had his moments yeah. this year, so they've got and they've got good relief. Um, but man, the offense is loaded, and and so there's this this guy uh, Uriel whose last name's escaped me, the Cuban defector. Yeah, yeah. Um, this guy came on really hot at the end of the year. He's just about batting 300, uh, and he's like he's like the the seventh or eighth hitter, right? Uh, Marwan Gonzalez is back of the order. Carlos Correa was injured and therefore didn't rack up the big numbers that he normally would have. This guy's got MVP level talent. And what about Altuve? 
Oh, well, and, and, and what you <laughs> Altuve and George who, Springer. I mean, who, they, who you voted for for National League MVP way back when? I, Altuve sure delivered, didn't he? I mean, that guy. I'm just giving you crap for oh, yeah. National League MVP. Oh, yeah. sorry. I was trying to <laughs> ignore that. Yeah, look, they, they used to be National League. As, as us Mets fans, we well appreciate right, from 86. So, right? so I gather that you're picking the Astros. I am picking the Astros. To come all the way out? Oh, yeah. So I think that I think that it's I recognize that's an underdog pick against the Indians. No, no. But, but so, I think, so Nationals I think Astros is Bobby's pick. Nationals Astros. And, and what's your pick for that series? I'm trying not to be a homer for the Astros, you know. So Astros in five as opposed to Astros in four. Let's make it seven. <laughs> All right, I'm going Indians Diamondbacks. Um and man, come on, Cleveland. It's 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 time. Um Windians <laughs> in six. There you go. You All heard right. it here first. So on that note, everybody, uh, hopefully we'll not be back at you until around about this time next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.